Hi there and welcome back to the ESPN Footy Podcast. Hello everybody, welcome to the ESPN Footy Podcast for another week. Proudly sponsored by Subway. Get your mid-match feast delivered fresh. Subway, eat fresh. My name is Matt Walsh and I'm joined as always by Jake Michaels. Jake, you haven't done a COVID test and tested positive after running on the SCG with 20,000 of your closest mates, have you? Uh, well, I've done half of that. I did a test yesterday because I woke up feeling a little under the weather and I actually did the test, came back and was working for like two hours and then went back to the counter to see the result. And because I completely forgot about it, saw the result, it was negative. But then it says only take the result within a 15, don't so don't take the result after the 15 minute period. So I'm like, uh, was it positive and it changed? So I don't know. I'm currently in limbo, in limbo. at the moment. Fair enough. Uh, Christian Jolly from Champion Data. Always good to have you on the podcast. Tell me this. When you're calling a game and a moment like what we saw at the SCG on Friday night happens, how hard is it to not get sort of swept up in the moment and sort of remain calm? I mean, I guess the, the game would have stopped, but like how how focused do you have to be during these times when you really just want to be a footy fan? Uh, again, I, I, I was lucky enough. I didn't work the game, but I did speak to the guys that worked it and they loved it. So as soon as uh, he kicked his goal and they all ran on, they got to do some of their mid-quarter edits and uh, fix up a few passages of play. So it was uh, probably that stoppage at the end of the towards the end of the game helped to sort of yeah uh, do the edits. But again, I think it's easy because the game stopped. It's easy sort of to soak it in and just enjoy it. Um, one of the one of the longer quarters in Champion. Exactly, so I, I did say that. I was yeah very happy not to be working to uh, you know close to eleven o'clock that night from a sixty-one minute final quarter. 11 o'clock. I think it was one about one o'clock when I finished up, Jake. Yeah, on tell Friday. me about it. <laughs> uh, very special guest uh, on board uh, this week, Ron Connolly. He's the medical sub, but he's not going to be sitting on the pine the entire time. It's good to have him back. And he's not on a the first podcast. gamer. <laughs> and he's not a first gamer. That is true. But, you know, first first game for the season. Rowan, good to have you on board. Good to be here. Uh, I'm so old. I remember some of those other guys kicking their thousandth goal. Uh, you know, big question for me out of the whole buddy show was, what on earth was the Channel 7 director thinking by going for that shot behind him and managing to get half a woman, a woman's half head in the shot? One of the most important shots in footy we've seen for years, and there's this woman's head in it. What was that about? You know what? I reckon it almost adds to the charm. Uh, we were talking before the <laughs> podcast about all these little subplots and stories that have come out of the night. And I think that's one of them where you just, like at least the actual, like his kick wasn't covered. It was just a little bit of green grass. Like you could still see the ball flying. If, if it had been in front of that, it would have been a bit of an issue. But I think like the fact that it, the way that it panned out, that it, the way that it did, it just makes for the story. Well, you know, that's, you've you touched on the other thing. I mean, one thing I'm always bemoaning the loss of in football is spontaneity. You know, anything that looks like being a big moment gets scripted to within an inch of its life. And, um, you know, given the way that happens now, I guess that those scenes are sort of as close to unscripted as we're going to get in football these days. So from that point of view, it was, yeah, it was good. It was a bit, bit of a throwback. It had old codgers like me thinking back to the good old days. <laughs> we'll get into that a little bit later as well. Not the old codger part, but the buddy stuff. <laughs> uh, but before we do get into the podcast uh, today, guys, and there's a lot to get to as always, something from round two which piqued your attention, Jake? Well, you know, normally I, I get to these pre-pod meetings and I'm, I'm racking my brains because I notice 50 things and I never write them down. But I wrote something down this week because I, I thought, when's the last time that happened? It was a, It's a stat thing. So Christian might be able to tell me. Actually, I know. So I've already got the answer. But it was in the Frio-St. Kilda game. St. Kilda won the game with only three goal kickers, which is pretty remarkable when you think about it. So they kicked nine goals. It was a low-scoring game. But they won. They beat St. They beat the Dockers with just three goal kickers. And I thought, when's the last time that happened? And I actually found out that it was the game, which funnily enough, I was talking about um, a few days ago with Rowan, the famous Ben Ronk game when he kicked seven uh, yeah, against on the Hawthorne. Friday night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it was Ronk, Parker and Haywood that kicked the goals that night and they beat Hawthorne in, I think that was a pretty low scoring game too. So uh, yeah, you don't see that too often. And that was 2018. So yeah, a fair while ago. Good one from you, Jake. Uh, Rowan, something you uh, that took your attention during the week? This one's a bit a, a bit left field. I've sat in the crowd now at a couple of Essendon games, um, and they're pretty unforgiving. Unlucky. Yeah, well, they're pretty unforgiving lot, usually Essendon supporters. But there was a certain muted sort of acceptance on uh, on Saturday, and it made me think, 
I think people are, it's early in the season. And I think people are so wrapped to just be able to go to the footy again that they're sort of being a bit more forgiving on, on their teams. It's sort of like, oh, well, I lost, but gee, at least it's great. We get to go to the footy. I'm giving that about another four weeks, I reckon, before, come on, you, <laughs> you know, yeah. but it, it really struck me because it, was it wasn't, Essendon, you know, did enough to just about win that game, couldn't convert to save themselves. They're in a, a world of pain, you know, they've lost Zach Merritt now, they've got Melbourne next week, and all the supporters walking out going, oh, well, still great Saturday afternoon at the footy, it's... I'm sure they would have been. I'm sure they would have been thrilled with Jimmy Stewart's uh, efforts in the third quarter, whenever that was. Yeah, well, I, I had a few words to say to people <laughs> around me about it. <laughs> <laughs> are, they, are, they, are the fans as forgiving to the umpires, or just their their, their own team? Um, no, that's well. Funnily enough, a guy that came with me, he he was umpire bashing all day, and I was forced to turn around and say, you know, I don't reckon they've been that bad. <laughs> Which always disarms anyone. They're always bad when you're, bashing. Yeah. <laughs> when you're when you're the voice of reason amongst your friends, it kind of dawns on you. A this bit. is what happens when you get old, you know, like all, all that angst and parochialism, whatever, it's all gone. Yeah. Um, something I noticed, and I'm going to continue this crusade that you had last week, Christian, the yellow ball during the day. I'm sorry, <laughs> AFL, it is not it. And you know, you know what? You and guys I've need to get over this ball no, thing. We're talking MCG I'm not, Sunday. I'm not going to get over this because, and here's the thing, on Sunday... Um, at the MCG in, in beautiful sunshine, Richmond and GWS are playing. And here's how lazy I think the AFL is in this situation. They've got a blanket rule that any game that starts after three o'clock, so the 320 bounce, they just do a yellow ball because when daylight savings uh, hits or doesn't hit or whatever it is, whichever way it's going this, this time around, um, the, the games are usually in some sort of dusk by the time six yeah. o'clock hits in July. But I can tell you now, in March at 320, in the afternoon, there is absolutely no need to be playing with a yellow ball. Bring back the red footies for the day games. But is it? But this is what I was saying last week. Is your issue the colour or because you can't see it? No, it's the colour. Just play with a red footy. And you've got two teams that are wearing but why red? Because it's traditional. Mine, mine is a little bit with the colour. I, I, I find the yellow you ball. I can't see it. I find the yellow ball harder to sometimes harder to track and see and just follow when it's in the oh, air. On, on a bright a day. Yeah, it's not impossible to see, but yeah. Anyway, that was my thought, and we'll continue this crusade. Well, as as yeah, hang on, on. I'm, I'm going to weigh in on this now. Do like, why do they have to have a blanket rule that anything exactly. after three o'clock? I mean, what is someone not, you know, smart enough to go, okay, well, daylight savings, the sun doesn't go down until 7.38, we can probably get away with it. Or I bet it's just one of those things no one bothered to think about until yeah, it, it happened. Yeah, could also be go, Oh, gee, you know. But we play a lot of day games during under under the under the roof at Marvel now as well. Why not try the red ball under the roof, even if it's a day game? I mean, I'm not sure why the fact that they need to have yellow yellow balls when there are artificial lights involved. Is the red um, ball different to the yellow? You know, like cricket. So you got the the pink ball. Is that's a really good question. Like, I wonder if we, we tried to ask about that. Oh, you know, yeah. I think it's a theory. It is, isn't it? Um, well, I had that theory and it was debunked pretty quickly. Oh, was it? Yeah. Well, you debunked it. <laughs> I, I remember, again, I'm so old. I, you know, when they first used... That, Rowan, hello. that's the third time you've you've referred to your age here. No, so I just want to go on record saying it's you saying it, not us. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just hoping it gets me the sympathy vote. But um, I, I don't know why I remember this, but 1981, they started using yellow footies in... Mm. Uh, in wet weather games and in wet was, weather games, yeah. So they must have thought there was a difference in the the um, uh, the effect of the surrounds on the footy then. Mm, but yeah, right. it's that long ago. It's over forty years ago now. Gee, that also makes me feel incredibly old. Let's get <laughs> on with it. Stuff. Let's get on with it. Uh, we brought in a new segment last week. Uh, we'll, we'll bring it in again. It's called "Let's Overreact to." Uh, where we basically we overreact to a statement or a question and then eventually try and find some sort of medium balance uh, and find the, the right answer, so to speak. In Can I go just a quick one, Matt, yes. seeing you just thrown this on me? I reckon there's a massive overreaction going on about people's overreactions. There's people, <laughs> I mean, overreactions is a, is a fundamental part of the football media landscape and we shouldn't be overreacting to other people overreacting. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. This is like um, inception. I won't I react to that. What you're saying, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I won't react to that just to be to be sure. Um, now, the reason I skipped Christian during uh, the something we noticed is because he's got well one that's kind of crossed over with this. So we're going to do two little overreacts. Christian, firstly, the the crossover, something that caught your attention, but something you also want to overreact to. 
Yeah, it's just something that caught my attention again. It's round two and we keep stressing, you know, every pod that we do, we talk about early season trends and, you know, that it's a small sample size. But let's overreact to the uh, death of the uncontested mark. Um, the chipping around and holding on to the, you know, ball possession game style um, sort of dropped away a little bit. And again, first two rounds, we've only seen 18 games, but 39. So win the uncontested marks and win the game 39% of the time this year. Uh, first time it's been below 68%. So it's usually above 70% in previous years. So it's a big swing. Again, expect that 39% to jump up a bit higher. But early days sort of says that the teams that are playing better footy and, you know, uh, having more success are taking fewer uncontested marks and keeping that ball moving continually. So uh, just the top four teams for uncontested marks this season have been GWS, Essendon, North Melbourne and Adelaide. Um, so not many wins between them. And again, I really noticed it on watching Sunday's game, uh, GWS Richmond. And I think the Giants had about 80 uncontested marks or 70 uncontested marks in the first half of the game for not many points on the board. Um, and I just noticed their, neat, their VFL team was playing at the same time. And I think they've finished with 140 uncontested marks across their VFL game. So is it because a lot, clearly, of, teams, clearly, a lot of the good yeah, teams yeah. now prey on the, on the turnover? Well, yeah, it's almost like... Again, and we've spoken about it in Geelong term in terms of control footy versus chaos footy. And, you know, taking a lot of uncontested marks, taking the heat out of the game, it's 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 having high, higher control type games. So, um, and again, stacked up well for West Coast. West Coast won a premiership with it, um, you know, not too long ago. But again, it was something that they worried about or it sort of caught up to them once it got to finals footy where they couldn't take players clean and controlled footy. Um, they probably weren't winning as, winning as many games. So we sort of said Collingwood, Craig McRae's come in and he's taken away a lot of that uncontested mark and chipping around footy. Carlton are doing a little bit more, just flying out of the stoppages by hand. Um, you know, Bulldogs never been a high, um, high uncontested mark team, but, you know, love to control the footy with just by hand or flipping it out to the side. So high possession. It ties in with high, tempo, doesn't it? Because... Mark. So it's almost like the uncontested mark game is becoming... Too slow of a tempo. Well, yeah, exactly. A control game is a slow game, and a slow game doesn't work. It's not a threat to the opposition. It's just a safety valve for yourself. I'm not willing to say it's the death of the uncontested mark, but I think there is still time to use it uh, in, in games. And, and I think I've seen it used effectively through the first two weeks by some teams who who feel like they need to slow things down and need mm. to just in, in, like inject a little bit of tempo into the game. You know, it might have been helter-skelter goals both ways for a bit, and they just go, all right, let's just cool the jets. We feel like we've got a hold of the footy. Um and I've, I think that can still be used effectively. Maybe not as a, as a primary game style, as you've alluded to, Christian, but I still think there's a room for the, the uncontested mark to, to play an important part of, of, of footy games. Are, are, are Geelong still sort of seen as the kings of controlled possession, you know, uh, tempo football? Well, again, it was probably, it was definitely West Coast Geelong um, last two years. Um, Geelong's switched it up a little bit. Again, small sample size from the two games, but they only took 70-odd marks against Essendon and scored over 130 points. So I think it was like one of the, you know, their fewest marks for at least 120 points in a long, a long, long time. So usually when they, you know, had high scores because they sort of just controlled the footy so much. Uh, and, you know, West Coast, hard to get a read on with top-up players and that, but their marks have dropped too. As I said, they're not in the top four. So, uh, yeah, definitely those teams aren't, Sort of as, as Matt said, they're not doing it as their primary game style. So it's not starting from quarter one and saying, hey, we're going to chip the whenever we get possession of the ball, we just want to chip it around, take the heat out. It's it it's more about okay, we bring it in at the last 10 minutes of the quarter where we've we might be two or three goals up heading into halftime. Let's chip it around now. So seeing periods of it, but yeah, definitely Geelong, Collingwood, West Coast, they're all slightly come down back towards the pack. And I think, you know, besides West Coast, I think Geelong and Collingwood at the moment are still playing, you know, good footy and contenders and you know, undefeated for Collingwood. Um, and it'll be that's why I think West Coast will be an interesting watch to see. Once they do get their cattle back and they're up to their full, are they actually going to sort of give up on this game style that they've been playing the last three or four years? Mm. Um, Jake, we mentioned it off the top, uh, but you were at uh, the SCG on Friday night. Uh, you got to see Buddy kick his thousandth goal uh, and, and wrote a lovely piece in the aftermath. We recorded a bonus pod, so if you haven't listened to that and want a little hit of serotonin, I think is, is kind of how I how I said it, where we just sort of fast in the glory of all things that was buddy on Saturday. So if you haven't listened to that, please go back and uh, feel free to have a, a listen to that. But it got me thinking about uh, overreactions and, and, and things that we can overreact to and then try and find a middle ground. But buddy now, I mean, not that, you know, if he, if he retired on 999 goals, for instance, but like buddy, by the time he finishes his career could be footy's goat. Am I overreacting? I've always been surprised that, and again, not just this week where everyone's talking about, about him, but, 
I've always been surprised that no one's really ever spoken about him in that category or in that tier as not just the greatest player of all time, but one of the five or one of the seven or 10 best players of all time. I've never heard it. And we've heard it for players like, and we've, how we've done it on this podcast with Dusty after his grand final a couple of years ago, winning, you know, winning every award, uh, Gary Ablett Jr. We've asked the question about some of the other modern day players, but we've never really considered it with Buddy. Um, and I think there's a few points to it. It's almost like we have taken him for granted because he's been so good for so long. Um, we always have this emphasis on midfielders with Brownlow medals and stuff like that is they generally get more of the attention. But I certainly think, and we, we, we don't want to keep going on about the achievement in this era, but, but the reality is kicking a thousand goals today is a more difficult task than kicking a thousand goals 20 years ago. And what he's been able to do is incredible. I think it's I think it's crazy that he's not in the conversation. I think he definitely should be. And I think if he retired tomorrow, he would, in my opinion, and I, again, this is speaking of someone that hasn't wasn't watching football in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, but I find it hard to make the case that he's not a top 10 player of all time. Well, I was watching football in the 1950s, and no, I wasn't. Is that I number wasn't. six? Six <laughs> feels like it. Feels like <laughs> it. I look. I, you know, it's really got me thinking about this, and I, I think you're right. And I think his brilliance has almost worked against him in considering him as one of the all-time greats. It's because you're so sort of wrapped up in the spectacularness of what he does that you tend to look less at the statistical compilation. Here's mm. a good example. like It's like Gary Ablett Sr., who's the most spectacular player I've ever seen, no doubt, versus Jason Dunstall. You know, like Dunstall accumulated incredible stats, but because he wasn't necessarily that spectacular, you looked at the figures more. And, you know, if you forgot for a second how brilliant, you know, say Buddy was just a mark and kick forward, you know, regulation, whatever. If you looked at his numbers, they'd probably have more impact on you than they have because there's so much else to talk about with him, the athleticism and and the pace and his unorthodoxy as a goal kicker because he's not necessarily a, a really strong pack mark or, um, you know, it's just all about athletic gifts and nous and, and pure raw ability. And I think that means that you sort of, you're forever talking about that. And then all of a sudden he comes out and kicks a thousand goals and people like me are sort of forced to go, hang on a sec. He's played 320 games and he's averaged 3.1 goals per game. And at least half of them have come in an era where goal kickers are kicking literally half as many goals as they were. I mean, yeah. the, the Coleman medalist now gets 60 something. I was having a look again the other day at 1993, my, you know, greatest season, everyone's greatest season of all time. Three guys in 1993 kicked 120-something goals. You know, so that for me sort of affirms it, that that greatness is there in statistical measures, not just the powers of observation. The You kind of mentioned the different areas. I think the thing that impresses me about Franklin is that he actually kind of has played through a transitional era. You know, the last maybe 10 years, the first first five, six, seven years of his career, um, he, he could get away with that. I mean, he kicked 100 goals in 2008. But yeah. he's had to transition to through a, an era where key forwards are, are not kicking as many goals mm. and they are double teamed and they are zoned. But I think the thing that I, I really enjoyed with, with Franklin over the time is just how dynamic he is and how he gathers the ball on the half-forward flank and can turn around. And if he's anywhere within 70 metres, he's, he's, a, he's a chance. Well, wouldn't you say, Christian, I mean, this is without notice, but... The drift away from goal scoring as it was, you know, or the lower scores, but the way he got his uh, assets now are probably more suited to kicking bigger tallies of goals now than, say, the traditional lead mark kick key forward because he's had to conjure more goals through general play and, you know, athletic prowess rather than just that lead, get a, get a, get a break on your opponent, lead, mark, convert. Yeah, and it's probably, again, testament to how and exactly what Matty just said, to play 320 games, and I know, again, first five years, you've probably played slightly different, as a key forward in in, the, in what they've asked to do in today's game is, is impressive. He's got to chase, he's got to be their focal point, he's got to, you know, be in the right spots for the kicks, but he's also got to, as I said, the chasing, the pressure, the smothering, the getting up around the ground and into the zone is probably, yeah, probably a big part of his game that, 
you know, I, I think, yeah, even just saying it now, that's the impression, impressive number to me. 320 games is a key forward in modern day footy. That's hard enough to do, let alone kicking a thousand goals on top of that and being as exciting and, um, you know, as, uh, you know, just a, a hero for the kids. I don't know what word I'm looking for, but he's, he's, he's been that presence and he's been that player at the same time that, yeah, it's he has. And, and he's also he's also point. delivered on the hype and the expectation of moving from Hawthorne to Sydney. Yeah. I yeah. mean, everyone, everyone thought he was yeah. going to the Giants. Like, it was that was done. He was a Giant. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, no, he's playing for Sydney now. And the expectation, yes, you can say, oh, well, they haven't won a flag. But, like, you know, I, I've always said this. You know, one player isn't going to – especially in a sport where, you, where you've got so many players – one player isn't going to instantly make you win a flag. You you need a lot of things to go your way, and only one team wins it each year. So I think they've he's been. been they've been in two grand finals since he's been there. They have, but he's he's been a huge success. He could retire tomorrow. He has been a huge success, and I think I, I'd have no problem with him with saying he's a top ten player of all time. And I think he's certainly certainly in the in the discussion for being a top five player of all time. Yeah, I think once the dust the dust settles, rather, um, I think we'll find the top five is probably more appropriate. Uh, and I, I don't think, you know, given you know, five years after his retirement, I don't think you'd have many people arguing. And I know that there's always talk of recency bias and all this yeah. sort of stuff. But well, the other thing is, it's like the other part of it is, okay, well then name five pl- name five players that are better than Buddy Franklin, and it's like <laughs> it's pretty hard to do. Um, well, yeah, you know, again, I made this comment before, but. I always say Gary Ablett Senior is the greatest player I've seen because he did things that other guys physically couldn't do. Couldn't Franklin, you say that about Buddy as well? Yeah, I was going to say Franklin is the only other player I would mm. say that about. He does things that other no other player is physically capable of doing. Yeah. Is uh, is Buddy Footy's goat? You can let us know on Twitter at Footy Tips uh, if you want to weigh in on that one. Um, Christian, something that uh, caught all, well all of our attentions over the weekend was sort of a some accuracy stats this week. And we spoke about scoring last week and I kind of asked you to do some digging on expected scores. And we kind of found some really interesting stuff where, and I won't ruin it, um, but you know, I will sort of say that you think that there were four games that could have gone the other way if expected scores had played out the way they had. So let's delve into this a little bit. Firstly, I kind of want you to, because we've done this on the pod before, but it was many, many years ago, I think. Firstly, what are expected scores and how do you calculate them? Yep. So expected scores are just looking at uh, every single shot at goal uh, a team takes across a game, and the average amount of points the comp average the competition gets from that exact same kick or same type of kick. Um, and that's using you know all the numbers all the way back to I think it goes to back to about two thousand and ten we started doing pressure. So uh, basically, for guys you know thirty meters out on, on the left hand angle, kicking with his left foot from a set shot, he might have an expected accurate you know. Usually from that spot, people kick 4.1 points across all those shots taken. So if you get six, you sort of plus two on your expected accuracy. If you get one behind, you're negative three on your expected accuracy. And if you miss completely, you're negative four. Uh, so it's sort of, yeah, just it's looking at comp average of all your shot, all the shots taken. Um, and just saying, you know, if you had a kick that at um, the expected accuracy that, you know, the competition accuracy that every other team had kicked out from this spot, this would have been your score from a, from a game. So there were a few interesting results that we saw. Firstly, um, the, the Dogs and Carlton on Thursday night, the Blues were very accurate, 16-6. The Dogs, less so, 13-12. We saw Sydney kick 17-5 uh, against the Cats, who kicked 10-17. Uh, there are a couple of other results. You can probably go through them and explain them in greater detail of the teams that, that probably should have won if, if all things were considered mm. and, and, and taken equally. Yeah, as you said off the top, so four four games this week where the expected scores uh, had a different winner to the actual scores, uh, which is the most we've ever seen in one round. So, uh, yeah, it started on the Thursday night with Carlton Bulldogs. So the actual score, Carlton won 102 to 90. The expected score had Carlton at 70 and the Bulldogs at 86. So the Blues so, have outdone them their expected score by five goals. Correct, and they've both out they've both scored slightly over the expected score. So Bulldogs still scored ninety, which is four points more than their expected kick. But Carlton were plus thirty two uh, across from what they're expected to kick to what they actually kicked, which is the equal. I think it was the equal fifth best going back across the last five or six years of does, expected scores. So just uh, on that, does, does that sort of say that Carlton based on accuracy? Does that sort of say that Carlton might be a touch? overrated then because you you would expect that to sort of fall back in line with 
the well, average throughout again, the yeah, season. You know, is that is that overreacting or not? Is that the previous segment? I'm not sure. But <laughs> but, it, but, but it, my it, point is, you're right, not going to stay. You're not going to you're not going to see a team that's going to kick five goals above the expected every single week. Correct. Yeah. So you got it, and 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 that's why it's a great sort of uh, tool to look at for a game because yeah, you've. Or you, to get the four points, you need to win the actual scores. So that's that's your, your main key focus. But again, to take a step back and look at the expected scores can sometimes sort of bring the game into a different light of, hey, we actually won this game, you know, but we we're actually pretty lucky that three or four of these goals went in. So we need to actually fix our, you know, look at what issues do we have in the game? And probably Carlton was that last quarter in the territory battle. So how do we fix that? So sort of not resting on your laurels and saying, yeah, we won the game. Let's all pat ourselves on the back. It's, it's taking that deeper look at going, okay, if I look at expected scores and we we actually, you know, lose 20 points from our expected scores to our actual scores, then what, you know, what did we do wrong that we need to fix to make sure that we can get our, you know, expected scores up almost? So, um, again, talking about games from this weekend, um, you know, the game we've just been talking about, even uh, the Buddy Franklin game, as it should be known now, <laughs> uh, the expected scores had Geelong winning that game. So, again, uh, actual score, 107 to 77. Everyone's sort of talking about, you know, how good Sydney was, how poor Geelong was. The expected scores, though, Geelong 87, uh, Sydney 81. So if I'm Geelong, I'm digging into that and sort of saying, okay, expected scores has, has winning by six. So, yeah, we lost by the game by 30 points, but there's plenty of things in this game that we need to find that we take out as a positive because we did actually, you know, win on the expected scores. So, um, and again, some of that might have been their ball movement stuff. And, um, yeah, again, we sort of talk about, I'll talk about it in a second about Brisbane. You can't, you can almost slightly control your accuracy. You can't control the opposition's accuracy. So that's where the, the, the side of luck comes into footy. You can be lucky with your shots, but if your team's luckier with their shots or with their accuracy, then you could lose a game, um, which is, you know, similar to what has happened to Brisbane in finals in recent years, but just sticking to this weekend. So again, uh, so Carlton, uh, sorry, Bulldogs should have won their game. Geelong should have won uh, Friday night. Uh, Gold Coast Melbourne on Saturday night. Uh, the actual score, Melbourne won 82-69. Again, if I'm a Gold Coast supporter, I'm walk, walking away pretty happy from just watching that game. They look pretty good, but the expected scores had them actually winning 78-75. to 75. So they actually generated better shots at goal than, you know, last year's premiers across that game. So hmm. something for them to sort of hold their head up high. And Essendon's probably another one. Again, I know Rowan might, might not uh, take much solace in this, but the... Uh, <laughs> Actual score, 75 to 97. So they got done by 22 points by the Lions. But the expected scores had Essendon winning 85 to 79. So, again, look at that game that they played round one against Geelong and it sort of was pretty disastrous, I thought, and lack of effort. The next week they've come out. They haven't got the four points on the board. But, again, they can look at the expected scores and say, we've done something right. We were generating better shots at goal than Brisbane across the game. Um, so, you know, let's look at the positives from this game. So, That's great, I, I don't wanna... I'm, I'm feeling I'm feeling so much better already. <laughs> I was going to say, we've, we've touched on it already, but the, the Jimmy Stewart incident. I was just... going to say, yeah. How I mean, do you, how do you oh, bake on, that thought... into, your, into the algorithm? <laughs> well, exactly, that wouldn't be there. So, James Stewart, yeah. The James Stewart That's your six points. You just said it was a yeah, margin. It all comes back to where the guy, how the guy kicked it and where he was. Yeah. So, so depending on where you are. So, if you're, if you're, obviously, if you're 40 metres out straight in front, your right foot, no, no pressure on you. Uh, the expected score would be a bit higher than if you're running towards one of the pockets and you're dribbling it through and there's a, a person right on your tail. Um, obviously yes. there are uh, like pressure factors are included in this, but does like weather play a part in it? The condition? No, so that's, that, that is the one thing that's missing. So, you know, if you're kicking to a howling uh, wind to the left or to the right or uh, rain, that's not taking into account. So it's just looking at, uh, game situation. So it's not venue dependent either. It's just how far out you are from goal, what foot you're kicking with and how much pressure you're under and how yeah. you got possession. So whether you took a mark or got a ground ball. So just for context, I think, um, you know, an early contender for the goal of the year, Ollie Henry uh, goal from the third quarter, Collingwood nice. Adelaide, that's the hardest goal that's been kicked this year. Cause I think he had, um, he had corralling pressure coming straight at him. He's kicked it from the right on his right foot from the opposite side, sort of inboard on the boundary, sort of have to go back and watch the vision. But I think uh, basically that kick usually gets you 1.2 points or might've been just under one point um, on average, but he got the full six points from that kick. So at the moment that's going down as sort of the, the, you know, the best goal this year in terms of all the hardest goal kicked so far this year. Um, I think I know the answer because you kind of already alluded to it, but, 
What about Buddy's thousandth? Surely a bit more has to be taken into consideration there. The pressure, all the kids hanging over the fence, lining up. Surely that is harder than a normal shot in those well, in again, it'll normal just be, circumstances. Yeah, it'll just be one thing that's sort of not not looked at in the numbers. So we can't look at, yeah, if you're trying to kick the kick the winning goal after the siren. So Jack Nunes against Frio and things yeah. last year. Yeah, oh, all those sort of situations. That's a point one yeah. I, I, I bring up the name <laughs> Dom Sheed, guys. Yeah, that's yeah. a really good. I point. mean that that is uh, well, pressure. And that, and that, that is situation. that is that's a very important reason. Dom Sheed for me, the greatest goal of all time was kicked by Dom Sheed. Mm. Who oh. else has? No one else in the history of the game has had a kick to effectively win a premiership. What a talk of overreaction! Front in the grand final with one minute forty seconds left on the clock. <laughs> um, um, yeah. Well, maybe maybe that's how champion data can improve going forward is maybe... Did you look at these things and sort of say, how can we uh, look at weather, for instance, and the way it plays a part? Weather's a good one. Thing? Yeah, weather, weather's been around since day dot, since I first started. So we used to track whether it was raining. Um, and then again, what is rain? And again, it... it yeah. how, yes, how do you determine what's, what's how, raining how much so if, rain? Yeah, yeah. If it's 20 mils of water on the ground, but there's no rain dropping during the game, is it a raining game or is it just a wet game? So... Uh, it's something, yeah, we haven't nailed. We've tracked, um, you know, uh, rain um, fall across the country for certain games, and we've done certain studies with it. But, again, it's probably just something that's – whenever we try to bring something in, it's, it's about how how well can we track this. Yeah. Very, very hard to bring in weather without getting into subjectiveness. Fair enough. Uh, look, there are a lot of really upset Port Adelaide fans out and about uh, after two weeks of the year, and they've got the showdown coming up this week. But the one that really interested me, Christian, and it's, you know, like I, I kind of like we said with, with Rowan and the Bombers, um, you're not going to take too much comfort from this, but the Port Hawthorne result was also one that could have been not dramatically different, but pretty well, pretty, pretty different in the end. Yeah, so it should have only been, uh, I think it was 17 points or 19 points in the end, sorry, uh, that Port that Hawthorne beat Port by expected scores. So, again, uh, you, you're right. You say to a Port supporter, hey, if Hawthorne beat you by three goals this Saturday night, would you be happy? And they'd say no. You'd you be compare filthy. that to the 10-goal loss that they actually witnessed. And you take a step back go, okay, yeah, we lost to Hawthorne, which wasn't great. But, it, again, looking at expected scores and where we were getting our shots from, it was only really a 19-point loss rather than a 60-point loss. So it's not time to sort of... As I said, throw everything out of the basket and start again for Port oh, Adelaide. That's <laughs> yeah, it's, it's I tell you what, though, just on that quickly, a little little bit of a sidebar, but here's a shout-out to two players that it's so easy to forget about players that get injured and we have a season and we move on. But James Sicily and Jack Gunston, my God, they are two fantastic players. And you talk about goal-kicking all the time. Jack Gunston's got to be one of the best to do it in the last sort of 10, 10 years. You've been reading my Twitter feed, Jack. <laughs> Uh, I'm not. I'm not very active on Twitter. So no, well, no, no. Well, two things here. I, I tweeted that about Gunston last weekend. I, did, I think he's one of the most underrated players of the modern era. Absolutely. The amount of he's kicked like 400 goals now, hasn't he? Very, very smart football, you know. And 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 that's a that's a, an asset that is becoming even more valuable. But the other one, you know, I went on about Sydney last year. Hawthorne are my Sydney this year. And I've got I've got the I've written something to prove it before the season started. I don't reckon they're gonna go gangbusters or anything, but you couldn't tell me that those two names, Sicily and Gunston, weren't gonna make a huge difference. But it was more than that. If you look at the end to last year, they really started to to yep. pick up. I think their kids are better than people thought. They got a better coach now. Get, I think they're well positioned. Oh, no, you get you the, and Clark. You do, you do get the new coach bounce, regardless yes. of who the predecessor was. It was all set up for them to be. They look good. Okay. Well, and, you talk about accuracy and, and and expected scores a little bit, and um, Rowan, you sort of talked about this in in your uh, video that you did for the site this week. But you look at someone like, and you can kind of see Hawthorne; they're going to lose some games. They're not going to go on this this fantastic run. You, you've just got to look at someone like Mitch Lewis, wonderful set shot um, exponent, uh, but he's been pretty much perfect to the start of the season, and that's not going to last like that. So you, you kind of got to tie in this. It's a feel-good story, you know, the, the quote-unquote momentum of how the Hawks are going under a new coach. Um, but there is going to be these this sort of evening out, Christian, as you say. Yeah, and as a, again, just looking at the one stat of, again, looking at expected scores and taking the top stat of how often they scored a goal per inside 50. They scored a goal 29% more often inside 50 than Port Adelaide did on the weekend. And again, that that's just not going to start, you know, usually a, a winning team might be 10% above, 6 to 10% above. So to be 29% above, it was just that it was 
it was almost perfect footy for them. They got it inside 50 and couldn't help but kick a goal. Port had yeah. more inside 50s, but just could not find the goal face at all. Uh, so you're right. You're looking at Hawthorne, you're sort of saying, well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. There's still a lot more we got to fix. Um, but again, you, you take solace in the fact that, hey, we, we had a pretty potent foot. And you talk about the, the guys that they're up there, Gunston, Mitch Lewis, that's their, their forward line going forward. It's like well, Luke Bruce as well. They are accurate yeah. kicks. Like, yeah. Um, well, Rowan, you did have some thoughts on accuracy, though. And you kind of look at the, the good part of things and, and then look at the not so good part of stuff. But like, what are your thoughts on the way that, that the first couple of weeks have panned out? In terms of accuracy, um, kicking a goal, well, where are yes, you taking your shots uh, from? That's funny. I did that video without being aware of Christian's stat about the expected scores, but it just—I don't know. Nothing seems to change with this. You know, we had was it last season or the season before was the most inaccurate ever. Um, I reckon we've been having this discussion now for twenty years, where. You know, I've written the piece half a dozen times, you know, or how do we get better at kicking for goal? And then you you speak to a sports scientist and a fitness bloke. Then you talk about the uh, debate about, you know, the fitness guys not letting players practice enough because they're worried about soft tissue. And then the bloke who goes out in the training track with the headphones of crowd noise to replicate the pressure, blah, 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 blah. But it still seems to me like it's not... Uh, an exercise that we work hard enough on. It's certainly not. It's certainly not something we talk enough about. Now I understand why, because when you're talking about contested ball or whatever, well, how do sides get better at winning the contested ball? How do you get better at kicking? Well, you kick it between the two big sticks instead of the big stick and the little stick. There's only so much you can say, but that is the reason I think we don't talk about it much, even though it's far and away the most important thing. I mean, just have a think about it. And, you know, I don't want to put champion data out of business, and I spent a lot of my time <laughs> talking about this stuff too. But, you know, we've spent so much time and column inches and whatever talking about contested ball, tackles inside 50, D50 to inside 50 transition. All these things give you a, a you know, bit of a percentage better chance of generating a shot at goal. And then you turn around and you have a shot at goal and you miss it from 10 metres out. And then, and then we just go, oh, gee, that was bad. Okay, but about that contested footy and clearance, uh, post-clearance contested possession, you know, I, I, I know it's sort of difficult to know what else there is to say about it, but you would surely have to say, wouldn't you, there is something fundamentally wrong when every other skill of the game is seen to have, have gone ahead and leaps and bounds with full professionalism, and yet accuracy doesn't. Okay, players might be more fatigued. Is there any more pressure on them? I don't think so. Maybe the fatigue does have a bit to do with it. But then you accommodate that more by letting your specialist forwards kick a goal more. But, but you putting. also see it's the like players bigger. missing easy shots five minutes into a game. It's not just fatigue in the fourth quarter. Well, it's also the, the thing like, you know, this thing about snapping around the corner and we saw Jack Darling. You know, we see players routinely now take shots uh, snaps around the corner. The right way to take a set sh- a, a shot, mind you. Oh, I, I, I don't agree with that. Not after Jack Darling's effort. Shai Bolton but, does it on the run. He, he yeah. runs in straight and then more control then hangs but, around. But again, th- th- this is my point that this should be an exact science. You know, like it, the consequences of making an error in a kick for goal are six times on the scoreboard. They're actually measurable as a consequence. You mess up a handball to a teammate, that's about a tenth of consequences missing a shot at goal. We don't talk about it enough. Yeah. We clearly don't spend enough time working on it. And I, I know this makes me sound like old fuddy-duddy, everything was better in my day sort of thing. But, hey, who's the most accurate goal kicker of all time? Tony Lockett. Who Who's next to him? I think Matthew Lloyd might be very close. You know, mm. like... None of the guys today. So um, that's that's the problem with me. Like, you know, you look at even this number. So it hasn't been above 50% since 2015. So just taking that, you know, that big part of the skills, if you if you were hitting handballs at 50% rate, you're getting dropped. If you're hitting kicks at 50% rate, you're getting dropped. If you're taking marks at a 50% rate, you're getting dropped. If you're kicking goals at a 50% rate, you're on the comp average. So it, it is a funny number to me. We're, at, we're slightly up this year. So we've spent, just spent time smashing them. They're up to 48%, which is the highest it's been since 2017, but we're still not up above 50% for having a shot at goal and scoring a goal. 
Christian, I don't know if you can have a word to broadcasters, but I remember last year the pressure factor was put up sometimes during um, during broadcast, and you could see like where the teams were in the, terms of the their pressure. start of the year. It was, wasn't it? I'd really love to see expected scores brought up and, and just having commentators talk about that because I think that'd be fascinating listening while you're watching. Well, we should talk yeah, about we, it. Like we are more. reporting on it live this year, so it might be something you see quite you soon. Go. Don't you love it, though, when they put up the pressure factor? I say, well... Richmond's pressures at 268. I mean, is that good? Is that bad? I tell you well, what, Rowan, I, was... I can tell you now, if you go back to uh, season two of the podcast, we did a big uh, expose on pressure. We actually might have to rehash this at some yeah. point um, uh, for those that have just joined the podcast in, in recent months or years, uh, because we did have a really, really big episode on it. It was really in, in, um, informative, but yeah, it has been a while. Um, I was watching an NRL game a couple of weeks ago and they had a graphic come up and it was, it was something like the VB hard-earned index. And it was just 52. And I'm like, 52 what? 52 <laughs> slabs? Like, it, it, there's no context. Pascals of pressure. <laughs> no, that's a 52 cans David Boone drank on that flight. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was 52. <laughs> um, let's move on. We've uh, something, it's, it's funny, you watch enough footy, Jake, and after a while you start noticing things that um, either, either trends or, or non-trends. And, and one thing that's been really pretty clear to me over the last two weeks, and I'm really happy that Christian's been able to confirm this for me, is that Ruckman are giving away a lot of free kicks in the Ruck contest and more so than, you know, in previous years. And we think it's a combination of things, you know, changing of rules, changing of interpretations. But the thing I think that annoys me when I watch Ruck contests these days is you're getting paid a free kick against seemingly for being the bigger, stronger guy in the contest. And I think that there needs to be some more tweaking done this is me putting my sort of, you know, I'm editorializing a little bit here. There needs to be some more tweaking done because I don't think it's quite perfect. And Christian, you've got some stats that back that up. Yeah. So I looked at free kicks paid in the ruck. So against either Ruckman um, going to the other guy. And again, sort of saw a rule change. At the end of 2016, they banned the third man up rule. So we sort of saw ruck work become more of an isolated one-on-one uh, stat because probably from 2012 to 2016, almost I think 20 or 30% of ruck contests had a third man up trying to come over the top of them. So the game slightly changed for him a little bit. And yeah, just went back to 2017. So again, pretty steady that per team per game, there was one ruck free kick paid across 2017, 2018, 1.2 per team in 2019. So it got up a little bit. It's at 1.7 per team per game so far this year. So it's definitely the highest it's been. Um, in those five or six years. But yeah, just looking at the first two rounds, sort of put in context. So again, going back to 2019, 41 in the first two rounds, uh, 2020, 31 in the first two rounds, 2021, 37. Uh, this year, we've already seen 53. So again, when you know when I see that number, it's, it sort of shows you why Matt's been able to notice it because uh, 53 across the first you know 18 games or so um, is, a, is a fairly yeah, high amount. Do we, do we not want the ruck contest to be a pure kind of strength fest and if you're the smarter stronger ruckman you know even if you're using the angles to your advantage or if you're if you're using your body to get under the the the, the line of the ball which is why they seem to be paying some free kicks for either pushing or blocking don't we want to see these kind of things instead where we're There's instead of having facility for that though now isn't there because you get a wonky center bounce and it gets recalled correct and around the ground you get it thrown up which ensures it's always going to be straight so and, and, but you, and also get, ground, you also get also get the bounces that aren't dead straight which favor one ruckman over another and they don't call them back they only call back the ones that are extremely no but, com- but compared to you know the 90s or 80s or whatever i mean the the uh, scope you have for exerting your technical dominance as a ruckman or strength uh is far less than it used to be so mate, I, I don't know, i'm just thinking on the run here you know because there is less room for physical craft you know, do they pay more freeze now? Because I don't know, it sort of eliminates. Why don't we just get rid of Ruckman and the hit outs? Oh, thank you. Thank <laughs> Let you. Let the ball hit four, the ground a second mids. time and then we don't need him. Oh, <laughs> well, I um, mean, really, in all seriousness, I don't want to derail this conversation, but you know, how often do the hit outs bear no relation to the game result? And more now often than not, the, way, the clearances as well, you know, mm. there fact, will come a time. There again, will come to pursue a time. this theme. It all just comes back to scores. All we should do is kick for goal. That's all that matters. There'll come a time where we just won't have Ruckman as we know it anymore. I guarantee that. Well, like, I'm not like saying it'll happen next year or in three. Well, ask, pre- ask Premiership will come Ruckman a time Sean where Green. we just move away, transition away. Well, they legislated against having 
small blokes go in the rough, Jake. So that they, I think they want to keep him in for now. But it just seems so pointless to have this this contest between two of the bigger, stronger guys in your team, and then pay a dinky free kick for for getting a better position. And that's no, I, I, they looked at the type the free kicks pay. So seventeen were for high contact. So that's not a strength thing. That's probably just you know yeah, uh, arms flailing. Arms ten holds uh, again. So probably more of a ruckman being out of position. Seven pushes, so pushing the back or pushing the side, illegally pushing the ruckman, but 19 blocks. So that's the highest one for me. And again, I think I, I think I heard Razor Ray Chamberlain um, talk about this on radio uh, last year. And it was after an Oscar McInerney, I think it was in one of the finals, gave away a controversial free kick. And, and Ray Chamberlain basically said, look, that free kick was 100% correct by the umpire. It's just not a very well-explained rule. Mm. So what it is is basically, and again, this was easier to explain, because it was a centre bounce, the, the ball got bounced and it sort of favoured McInerney. So what McInerney did is he turned his back to the uh, to the opposing ruckman, creating basically a wall between him and where the ball was going to drop. That's illegal. Whether you make contact with the ruckman or not, you need to give the ruckman. You need to basically keep the ball between yourself and the ruckman mm-hmm. as much as possible without blocking the ruckman's if, run. If you're going to have bounced me, balls, that's going to happen. Correct. So to me, it's it's that. Yeah, it's, I, I understand what Ray was saying and what the umpires are looking for, and yes, they got that right, but the rule is, in, is just incorrect to me. The rule should not apply when it's a bounce that they Great. can't guarantee will go straight. Makes and sense also, if, if you can get the, up, but yeah. If, if you can, even around the ground, if you can get your opponent out of the way and then turn your body and you can protect the space, yeah, you, so you're again, the stronger I think- player. It, from the rules, and I don't think they've come out and explicitly said it. From the rules and reading that, I think they want to make it an aerial contest. So they, they want to take what you're saying, the question that you asked, the thing. I think they do want to take the strength out of ruck contest, whether that's right or wrong. It seems to they want the ruck contest to be above head, try to win the tap, not all this bumping. And you know, you go back to Rowan, we'll go back to olden days again. Some of the some of the antics Justin Madden got up to towards the end of his ruck career of resting his, you know, he knew he couldn't out jump any of the younger guys anymore. So he, nestle his head into their arms and just become annoying and just take away i think they're trying to eliminate that they want you know they want luke jackson and nick natanui both going for huge jumps at the ball not trying which to wrestle which, at ground level to win the tip tap which is a big call when you think that two of the most fated not just ruckman but players of all time are john nichols and polly farmer both of whom now would be seen as hideously undersized for for the ruck role hmm. you know so we're effectively eliminating um, a type of player in doing that, aren't we? But mm. I mean, the ruck, the, really, the sort of integrity of ruck work has been eroded gradually for the last couple of decades now, yeah. really. There we go. There's uh, seven minutes on ruck chat on the ESPN footy pod. Always Harry, Harry Madden will love that bit. Can I wake <laughs> up now? <laughs> oh, Jake, you and Ruckman. Uh, 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 yes, you can wake up because it's time for justified hype or hyperbole. Oh, uh, the our segment favorite where segment. I'll say, I'll say a statement. You guys tell me whether the hype is justified or I'm speaking in hyperbole, Rowan. And you would probably have got a first-hand look at, at one of these players on the weekend. But it's time to tag the Cripses and the Petrarcas and the Neils of the world. There's two Petrarcas? <laughs> um, no, Jake. Yeah, no, uh, definitely justified. I mean, Essendon has a sad history of not tagging guys who routinely carve them up. And Lockie Neils, one of them. Others have done it too. Um I don't know. It seems coaches seem, I don't know if it's about being perceived as being too negative or they're just like sheep. And if the other guys aren't going to tag, well, we're not going to tag either. And whether it's just terminology, I noticed Nathan Buckley, our our new media colleague, Nathan Buckley, I noticed him use the term cooler. Yes. Yesterday. I noticed this too. Brenton Sanderson used the same thing. They're good mates, aren't they? Yeah, they are. He did on SEN a couple of weeks back. They're not taggers or run with their coolers. Then the cooler. Uh, So uh, uh, some good gags we had there. I wonder who the West Coast cooler is. (laughs) Are you guys too young to remember that horrible drink? (laughs) I know (laughs) what you're talking about. Lost on me. It's mid eighties. It was a. It was like the UDL or the mid. Oh, you probably don't. Know oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Either. I got you now. Um, generation Jake. gaps really getting to me, do <laughs> Jake, um, we've we talked about this a couple of years ago again on the pod where we were lauding the use that GWS had with Matt DeBoer and, and how effective he could mm. be, and it seems we've just trended away from from taggers or coolers again. Well, call them whatever you want, but I think, as Rowan said, I think it's every club should almost have a player on their list that can come in and do that job, like a Matt DeBoer, who does it successfully. You know, there was a stretch a couple of years ago where he had about seven games in a row where he held seven of the 10 best midfielders in the comp to hardly anything. I mean, that goes a long way to winning a game. 
And to Rowan's point about Lockie Neal with the Bombers, like, don't get beaten by what you know. And, you know, going into that game, Lockie Neal, I think, I believe, had polled eight or nine Brownlow votes the last three times he'd, he'd played them. Well, make it 11 or 12. So I, I just, I don't understand how some players just get given so much space time and time again. The best players in the league, you need to put attention. I'm not saying every player can just find a Matt DeBoer overnight, but you certainly need someone that's going to put attention into them and actually try and stop them and, and limit their influence. Uh, next one. And this is contentious because there's been a lot of debate about the Eagles and the top-up players they've had to brought in to bring in and on the notice that they had to bring them in on. And I, we knew that there was going to be these contingencies with list spots and all that sort of stuff coming into the season. But does anyone want to put their hand up and say that a team in premiership contention would have had that match postponed if it was in West Coast situation? I'd like to think so. I'd like to think if any game in the home and away season, the, the AFL had come out on the front foot and gave the Cove up top up list, gave the rules clearly written. We had to, you know, as champion data as trying to get those players onto the list and try to, you know, manage squads across that. We weren't, we were aware of the rules. We were aware of the plan that they brought in place. This was the first test of the plan and people were already sort of, you know, trying to say, well, they've got to cancel the game. This isn't what I have a feeling that, yeah, I, I hope the integrity of the game and I have to now for the next 22 rounds or 21 rounds, whatever's left, any game in the same situation will be the same thing. You've got 20 yeah. top-up players. If you need to field a team with 20 top-up players and two AFL players, you're bad luck. But that is the rule that every that all 18 teams are abiding by for this home and away. And, and how do you determine how do you who makes the call on whether they're in premiership contention? Or not? What what? So they change the rule from round three onwards and then West Coast win 11 in a row and miss out on finals and say, well, if you let us play that game, if you'd postponed our game, we would have made it. And well, let, I, let me change the question then slightly. Let me, let me rephrase it ever so slightly. If Melbourne had to field a, a team of top-ups and they went up to Gold Coast and lost to the Suns, would there be more outrage about these rules? Yeah. No, I, I tend to agree with you, Matt. Now, it wouldn't be a formal thing even. It would be a subconscious thing. So... Yeah. You could just see someone in the AFL sort of, you know, the wheels are ticking and they're going, okay, well, West Coast coming to Melbourne, they struggle on the road. We don't think they're going to be a good side this year anyway. You know, they've got heaps of injuries, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's a different matter when you think of the ramifications of making Melbourne make 14 changes and then go on a road trip to Perth, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and I think... Wrongly, I think the AFL does tend to be sometimes driven in decision-making by the strength of blowback they're going to get. Well, I think they'd get a huge amount of blowback if they if they change the rule, or whether you want to call it a rule or not, now. I mean, the only, no, time, no, I can see them do, yeah. the only time I can see them doing anything is if it was for a final. Like they do you know? with the and AFL even the w. first week of final, finals becomes hard. Like, really, the grand final is the only one. Like... And I think I think everyone would be happy if if they were to say we have to put this back a week, we can't play a grand final with with a team having to make four changes. Yes. So finals, does this mean that the pre grand final like... buy is coming back? But again, the pre final buy doesn't make any no the pre grand pre grand final. Yeah, I mean it may well it may well have to. Well, we don't know where we're going to. But then the play, but then. We, you know? But then how do you know, you know, well, then what happens if they get it in the second week and then it's a big outbreak in the second week? I mean, who, I don't know. Like if we wind back to March two years ago, right, when the the whole season got delayed, I wonder how many people thought, okay, two years from now and three seasons from now, we're still going to be dealing with the ramifications of COVID. I, I I probably thought I probably thought, oh yeah, you know, this is this is this is another SARS, you know, we won't even be talking about this two years from now. Well, unfortunately, we are. Well, we we got friend of the pod, Josh Dunkley, who said in a column earlier this year, Jake, that he uh, would probably rethink some like, you know, social outings when a big game's coming up and, and all that just to make sure. So, you know, we'll see. Uh, all right, next one. Uh, what are we looking at here? Joel Selwood's about to become the longest tenured captain uh, in, a, in the AFL with 227 games at the helm this weekend. Begs the question, Jake, and you've got some strong thoughts on this. Is he the greatest captain of all time? Some have suggested that he might be. Um, I don't think so. I think the... See, these are the kind of overreactions we generally get, which these this is the kind of reaction I'm surprised we didn't get for Buddy when he kicked that, that goal. It's like, what? so we're all, we're, all, um, we're all carrying on about how great Joel Selwood is. 
but we didn't do this for Buddy? I don't know. I just don't think... Has Joel Selwood... Serious question. Has Joel Selwood e- ever been in his career either the best player on his team or a top five player in the league? Well, I'm, I'm a bit surprised to hear you say people are saying he's the greatest captain ever. Uh, are people saying that? Well, there's a question. I mean, when, when you've question's become been, the, the longest tenured, the questions do get raised. The question's been asked. I've seen it asked around a fair bit. Sorry, I mean people around. other than Kane Corns because it doesn't count if <laughs> Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> um, well, for what it's worth, I mean, <laughs> did you like that little dry-fire Kane? <laughs> yeah. um, he's clearly I have a been, listener of the pod too. He's clearly been a very good captain. But the first name that it comes to me, <laughs> I'm not going to mention it because of how old I am, but John Nichols. Um, and and I I am so old, I actually did see John Nichols play a bit. I've certainly seen a lot of his exploits. I mean, he was a captain who went on the ground, around the club, in every single thing he did on the ground. And and the, his teammates were in absolute awe of him. Um, and that's no disrespect to Joel Selwood, but, you know, Nichols would address a young player and, and it'd almost be like the coach doing it. I don't think Joel has that level of intimidation over the yeah. younger guys on the side. Um, I'm not even saying that's a good thing, but Nichols, from what I gather, I mean, he's as close to the perfect captain as you could possibly think of. I mean, I can give you a name right now. I cannot, the current captain I'd probably have ahead of him, Scott Pendlebury. I think he's... Really? Kind of, yeah, I think so. That's interesting. I think Scott Pendlebury's been a better player and had a better career. If they both retired today, if they both retired today, who would we look back on in 20 years' time and say who the better player was? I think we're Scott, talking about captaincy. Yeah. But how do we de- but then how do we determine a captain? Because yeah, we, 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 we got no idea, really. There's I two mean, kinds not- of captains. There's the one, like you say, the 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 Vossy Buckley, you know, type the intimidating sort of captain, which I think Selwood, in some respects, sort of fits into that where it's the lead by example. And then you've got sort of the other side of it where it's more of the stuff we probably don't see off the field, the leadership side of things, which I think is probably where someone like Scott Pendlebury excels. Well, I can I can think of a dual premiership captain <clears throat> who is probably one of the least obtrusive uh, leaders modern football's ever seen. In fact, you guys probably wouldn't even think of it. Who am I talking about? Dual premiership captain. Really unobtrusive leadership presence and yet acknowledged as a great captain. We're talking nineties. Yeah. Oh, okay. So two two wins in the nineties. West yeah. Coast. No. North. North. No. St. Kilda. St. Kilda. Adelaide. Mark Mark Bickley. Okay. We don't, you know, like you think about great captains, you think primarily on field, don't you? And, and Bix was great on field. But from what I understand, you know, so much of the of their captaincy example was off the field as well. Mm. Well, congrats to Joel. Um, 227 games at the helm is pretty impressive. Any, any, uh, anyone it's, it's massive, yeah. Dave. Uh, last one before we wrap things up. We're running a little long. Um, but the Friday night showdown. Finally, we've got one, and it's been long overdue, Jake. Uh, it has been, yeah. I don't know what the question is here, but well, yes. It's justified, um, isn't it? Well, it is justified. But we should have had it a long time ago. I, I've just, it's very frustrating. We wrote about this in our roundtable column this week. We kind of spoke about the AFL's fixturing over the first three weeks. And I'm just really, I've been really disappointed with it. I think there's, I can point to five or six disappointing things within the first three weeks alone. So obviously we've got the weird Wednesday night uh, start to the season. We've got the wasted grand final replay, rematch, whatever you want to call it. We've got a game over in Perth that finished at God knows what time in the opening round. Um, Not scheduling a Hawthorne-Sydney game I just thought it was weird knowing how close Buddy was to the thousand goals, um, and now we've got we've got the showdown on a Friday, which I think is fantastic. But we've got two games on a Friday which overlap, so I think that's a real slap in the face for South Australian football. Yeah, two zero on two it's teams a, though, so yeah, it's a know. weird one, the double Friday night thing. It's sort of yeah, you know, back we, to the nineties. Yeah, well, that's the, the shades of that. I don't know why. Does that mean we get the uh, Johnny Diesel right on the tip of my tongue music while we avoid the scores from the other game. <laughs> Look away yeah, now. We can enjoy um, a, we can enjoy a West. What was that drink you were talking about before? West Coast Cooler. West Coast Cooler. I'm gonna try. Oh, I'm gonna Google it. I'm gonna try and get it, one. It, it, trust me. I mean, even I, I'm older than West Coast Cooler, but it, it cuts swathes through childhood communities all over Australia. It, it was deadly. 
Uh, look, uh, well, look, we're looking forward to seeing a Friday night uh, showdown in any case, even though a couple of zero and two teams going at it. Uh, gents, footy tips, you can tip with us, um, footytips.com.au forward slash ESPN footy pod. If you haven't joined in, um, we're there. And I think, Jake, you're still up the top somewhere. And, uh, and I'm hey, not I've too got far to behind. A, I've got to apologize. I, I was, I went wild at Jesse Robinson last week. He wasn't happy. Three or four. He wasn't happy. <laughs> so I, I think Jake's, I only Jake's did backed up with a four this week. So, <laughs> um, Jeez, yeah. That, that I, I'll be the first to put my hand up and say, yeah, I, not the best week. Life just, comes at you fast. Just before we go, too, Matt, and I know this is an audio podcast, but I wish it was visual at the moment. Matt, that must have been some party you had last weekend because all I can see in the background there is empty <laughs> wine bottles. Oh, a collection yeah. of our favourites from over the time, that's for sure. Definitely not a one, <laughs> one weekend kind of thing. Uh, team, thanks for, for joining for another week. Christian, Rowan, good to speak with you both. Jake, uh, I'll speak to you later today as well. We've got some work to do. Uh, and to everyone at home, we will speak to you next week. Listen to all the latest episodes by subscribing to the ESPN Footy Pod wherever you get your podcasts.